Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This first episode of 2022 is part one of a two-part conversation I had in the autumn with Polly Barton, a translator from Japanese and the author of Fifty Sounds, which was one of my favourite books of last year. I was certain I wanted to read Polly's book the instant I heard about it, a memoir come reflection on Japan and Japanese and language and sound and translation that was structured around 50 different onomatopoeic words in Japanese, that had a particular resonance for Polly, and were part of her discovery of the country and its people and language. I couldn't wait. And the book, as I said, turned out to be one of my favourites of 2021. Poignant and funny and reflective, and always fiercely intelligent and honest. As well as looking outwards to the new people and culture she was encountering, Polly also looks inwards to examine her own response to what she was experiencing. In some translators' published reflections on translation, acquiring mastery of a foreign language happens off stage. It's almost taken as a given. Not so with Polly. She's frank that learning Japanese is hard. How could it be otherwise? With three different alphabets, thousands of characters, manifold subtleties of grammar and register to grapple with. It's a process fraught with confusion and missteps and hidden traps. I suspect Polly would reject the very term mastery as an illusion. She writes, Perhaps it is the fate of language learners to seesaw between two states, between thinking that learning is not only something doable, but something that we are actually doing, and thinking we will never get there. With which side we fall on, depending on really nothing more than how high our stakes of confidence are running, We are like stock markets, surging up so joyfully when there is enough optimism to be had, only to come spiking back down again when the belief runs out. In this first part of our conversation, we talk about Polly's early fascination with Japan, and how she found herself on a remote Japanese island at the age of 21. Sometimes, she writes, I wonder how I ever thought I'd survive, setting out for a rural island with just a handful of Japanese words to my name but survive she does, and goes on to tell the tale. Then in part two, we talk mainly about becoming a translator and writing her book. But we began our conversation in Polly's school days. One year, 
her school decided to offer optional after-school Japanese classes. The classes proved hugely popular, yet Polly did not sign up, despite already having been captivated by Japan, as she puts it, for numerous years. The after-school classes she associated with little origami frogs and a certain idea of Japan that she wanted nothing to do with. I asked her to tell me more. Yeah, I find it very strange to think back to that now. And actually that anecdote about the Japanese lessons that I (laughs) scorned was a relatively late addition to the book because it, it suddenly came back to me that this had happened. And I suppose I was fascinated by Japan, but, the, you know, I, in in a way that can't help but sound pretentious, I, I quite like, you know, I was reading my mum's Mishima books from the shelves. I was also really into to Japanese woodblock printing. I remember going to a a local bookshop and getting books on Japanese woodblock printing and kind of assiduously, you know, copying them out and kind of trying to very terribly mimic the shapes of the characters and so on and so forth. And I think to me, all of that felt quite private, you know, it felt quite sort of tied up with my introspective world in a way, and I, and I, there was something in the quality of the aesthetic, which felt very much of a piece with that. I think, and to me, these classes that and you know, I'm not to be honest with you, I'm not even sure that they really got to the stage of teaching people the Japanese language. I think it was like the odd phrase plus you know basic things about the culture, but it almost everyone in my year I think signed up to do them, and there was a wait list and and. There was something about the hysteria around that that felt, yeah, really, really pulled in quite the opposite direction from like what I conceived of as, you know, my Japan to be. Yeah. And, you know, there's no way there's no way of getting around how terrible that sounds now. But it, w- what I find kind of interesting about it in a way is like that there is kind of a common thread with how I perceive Japan now, you know, and and, and sort of. I find it very hard to get excited about a lot of the Japanese things that the people around me seem to get excited about. So, yeah, so <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I often think this recently, that your characters is formed earlier than you often suspect. And looking back, it's like, oh, wow, that actually, you know, is pretty much how I am now. I just didn't realise it at the time. Yeah, I I agree with that entirely. It's a it's- frightening in a way or illuminating at least to see how so early some of those seeds are sown so the other thing that I wanted to ask you about it's almost too obvious to say but you're clearly fascinated by language and how languages work and all sorts of aspects of language and I wondered the you at school what was what was your attitude to language then because when you get to university, this kind of interest in language seems to sort of blossom when you encounter Wittgenstein but when you were sitting in French or German classes at school was was anything being sort of sparked and activated then or was that was that a bit like the origami frog this again is a question that I've thought about a lot I loved French I think I took to it I suppose something that feels very important to me when I learn languages it was the same with Japanese and same when I dabbled in German a bit as well was the feel of the language in the mouth and the, the language as a sort of like whole 
all sensory experience. You know, the way that French feels totally different to speak to the way that German does or Japanese does. And and I think, you know, even as a school kid, I kind of really plunged into that. But a lot of the background to that is that my mum had studied French at university and spoke to us a little bit in French at home. You know, nothing, nothing major, but just kind of the odd <laughs> the odd sentence or whatever. And, and she was always very particular about pronunciation. And I think looking back now, I think that was a really major reason that I didn't pursue it, was just that I felt like I wanted to do something of my own, really. I felt like if I were to do languages, my mum would kind of always be there. And I think I wanted, you know, I felt like by going down the philosophy route, I was doing something that felt a little bit more like untrodden ground. And so it is kind of fascinating to me <laughs> that eventually I did come back round to languages. And, and admittedly, it's not, you know, it, it wasn't French. It was, it was Japanese. But <laughs> again, it's a similar kind of point to end on, right? That you kind of can't run away from <laughs> what you're actually naturally disposed to, to like and enjoy. I mean, I should say as a caveat, I also did really like philosophy or certain elements of philosophy. But I think in terms of like natural aptitude or natural draw probably I'm, I'm more of a, a languages person I guess. I realise in the book you're, you're probably abbreviating your university career quite a lot but from the way that you present it in the book it seems that when you get to your final year in Cambridge and you get to study the philosophy of language and specifically Wittgenstein that is when it really I don't know it all makes sense or that's when you really come alive and get excited about philosophy and I promised I wasn't going to make you summarize Wittgenstein on language and I'm going to hold hold good to that promise but can you just talk a little bit about what you sort of were finding in what he was writing about language because he's a sort of um vadimekum as you go through the book you you quote him and just this morning I was looking at the quotation where he compares a language to an old city and with all sorts of different layers of history and I thought that's a, that's a wonderful metaphor so it's clear that in writing about language from a philosophical viewpoint, he's nonetheless writing in a way that spoke to you in quite grounded and, and real terms rather than very high-flown and, and abstract terms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think there's two elements to that, actually. I mean, I think one is just the actual content of, of what he was saying, which, you know, in, in the Cambridge philosophy course, they take you through the history of ideas and there are various canonical figures and thoughts, philosophies that you have to study very comprehensively before you're sort of let loose on anyone modern so you can kind of understand the context from which they're working on. So we did, you know, we did Mill and Hume and we also did Descartes and, you know, Plato and Socrates and and you know, looking at ideas of body and mind. And and so I think, you know, by the time that I got to Wittgenstein, I really understood the view of language and the world, really, that he, that he stood against and, and that he was attempting to dismantle. And, you know, I think if you come to Wittgenstein without an understanding of that, it can, in a way feel a little bit 
Well, well, that's obvious. That's just how we use language. But I think, you know, when, when you're coming to it with this understanding of like the way philosophy has built language up to be something so far removed from our natural everyday messy use of it that there's a kind of ecstatic quality to what you know the 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 normalness in a way of what Wittgenstein is saying which is very much not to say that everything he says is you know self-explanatory to the lay person I don't mean that at all but I think then the other aspect was something that you bring up in in your question is of just how extraordinary his work is on a linguistic level. Everything about it feels just so radically different from everything else that I've been reading in in terms of philosophical treaties. It's broken up into very short, numbered sections. A lot of it is directly transcribed or feels like it's been directly transcribed or is just sort of a scribbled note. So there's, you know, lots of exclamation marks and kind of quoted speech or just relaying a conversation between two people. And he doesn't sort of say, obviously, this point is right. A lot of the time he's just, you know, just presenting that dialogue in kind of a a Socratic fashion, I suppose. And then... Yeah, like the exa- you know the example of comparing a city to language to a to a, a city. There are just so many metaphors and examples, and you know most of his examples are drawn very much from the world around us. So something that I talk a, a little bit about in the book is this metaphor that occurs quite near the beginning of language as a toolbox. And you know Wittgenstein also trained as um, or originally trained as an aeronautic engineer that was his first degree and so you know there's there's lots of and he was fascinated by sort of engineering and mechanics and so there's a lot of very practical imagery and tropes as well which just was so so different to reading Kant or whatever that it was yeah quite quite mind-blowing for me at the time. He's really quotable isn't he in a way that not very many philosophers are and as you say he uses figurative language in a way that's 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 highly memorable. So I can I can see why you you might want to to carry him with you literally and, and metaphorically. Let's move to Japan now. Then let's. Um, so you applied for the this. Um, teaching scheme which the Japanese government run and they didn't send you to a a big city they sent you to quite a remote island which in the retelling sounds quite a magical place I mean obviously it had a quotidian aspect too and sometimes a comical aspect and and I guess sometimes it, it didn't seem particularly magical but there was something there's something about it I think that you you bring across on the page can you just sort of describe the the setting and the circumstances into which you were you were pitched. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, how like really very underprepared I was when I went to Japan. You know, I didn't speak the language, but I didn't really know anything about the country at all. Now, very much to my shame, but that that was the truth of it. And so on the application form there was a section where you could request a specific geographical area of 
Japan that you would want to go to and they would, you know, attempt to oblige if they could. And I left it blank because I didn't really know. And I found out later that all the urban areas, particularly Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka, that they're by far the most popular places to be placed. So if you do leave it blank, your chances of being sent to somewhere extremely remote were very, very high. And I got placed on more or less, I think, the, the most, one of the most remote destinations available. So it's an, an island called Sado or Sadogashima, which is off the coast of Niigata Prefecture in the northwest. So we arrived into Tokyo for the opening conference um, and had a, a week-long kind of orientation there. Then we got the bullet train to Niigata, which is, I think, three and a half hours. From there, got off, got on a ferry, which was two and a half hours, and then arrived at, at Sato. And it's a really extraordinary place. It, you know, geographically, it's relatively large, It's but it has a population of somewhere in the region of 70,000 and no university. So it has very much an ageing population because people tend to go to the mainland for university and then leave. It's shaped like an anvil. So very, very narrow in the middle, but very wide at the top and the bottom, which means there's an extraordinary amount of coast. And, it, you know, the coast is, there are a couple of sandy beaches, but mostly it's this kind of really bleak, black rocks and cliffs and very sort of stormy grey seas, which is, was you know, is absolutely up my alley as far as scenery is concerned and I just you know there was something about it that felt so open and so infinite and so I I think especially coming from from Cambridge where my experience was one of just feeling very very claustrophobic in so many different ways and it really really did feel magical you know something that a conversation that I've had with a lot of people about this book is something that a lot of people have said to me is, I can't believe how good your memory is. Like you, you must be either making this up or you have a way better memory than me. And and the, the truth is, I don't have a very good memory, but I do, for whatever reason, have an extraordinary memory of that one year because I just think it was so formative for me and it definitely had really difficult points and and low points but it just you know in aggregate I I think often the things that are most magical aren't overwhelmingly positive or, or aren't exclusively positive right it was just this sort of really felt like an encounter with a different world and one that to me at the time felt a lot (laughs) more relatable than the world that I had come from even while I was very much an outsider within it. So you're encountering this completely different landscape you're dropped into this completely different culture but 
perhaps most of all for the purposes of of, of the of the book and our conversation you you're immersed in a completely unfamiliar language and i was saying before we began to, today that i had the experience after i graduated of going to greece and so i sort of had a very very you know very minor version of of, of what you had but that gives me at least some understanding of you know I didn't understand the Greek alphabet, but that that's a comparatively easy thing to learn compared to to Japanese. Can, can you just convey to someone who's perhaps not had that sort of immersive relationship with an unfamiliar language just what it's like? What is what is it? What is your brain doing? What is it actually like to kind of go out and encounter people and through them the language? <laughs> I think there's so many different parts of it. What was really noticeable for me was that the first month or so, it was so, there was almost so little to grab onto that I I, I sort of didn't realise the extent to which I wasn't understanding. You know, it, like almost before you can start to perceive the depth, <laughs> the enormity of your lack of understanding you kind of have this false sense of I don't I don't know just that that there's not actually that much communication going on I mean one one example of this which I I think is really interesting and I, I saw it happening a lot around me is there would be a, a, a sheet of paper with Japanese and English written on it and I would respond exclusively to the English and the Japanese people around me would ex- respond exclusively to the Japanese to the extent that both of us almost had to have it pointed out to us that the other language was written there. You know, that that really it's only what is comprehensible to you that is visible in a way. And I think throughout my learning period which obviously continues till today like that this is this I feel like that point has been brought home to me so many different times on so many different levels and actually you know to to skip ahead quite a lot I I I now feel like that is one of the most important things to remember about translation is and and the point that we really need to be careful about is is not the things that we no, we don't understand, but the things that we don't know that we're not perceiving, you know, nuances in the text that, that because we're not familiar with them, just go over our head. And so that's, yeah, that's why I think constantly asking and, and talking to people about language is, is so important. I remember in Greece, people repeating words to me and me not having a clue what, what they were. But at least I could go home and look up the word because I could identify a word as a unit. And I was thinking, when you go to Japan, it must be difficult even to know how to isolate a word in a context. And then how the hell do you how do you look that up when you get home? And how do you so how do you begin to assemble even the most rudimentary building blocks when you're when you're dropped in? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Japanese has three different alphabets. And it's an effort to learn the first two. You know, that's 50 characters a piece. 
So that takes quite a while to master that. But, you know, <laughs> once you've done that, you've only just you've only just begun, really, because then there's the, the, the big, yeah, there's, there's the kanji to learn. And there's 1,870 or something like that, which are needed to read a, a newspaper. So it's a really major undertaking. And I think what Japanese, what learning Japanese made really clear to me in the way that hadn't seemed as explicit when I was learning French is how separate the skills of listening and producing and writing and reading can be, you know, and and I've encountered people who are very, very good at one and really not very good at all at, at others. Or, you know, there are plenty of people, plenty of people who haven't been through the Japanese education system who live in Japan, who really just can't read Japanese at all, despite speaking it more or less fluently. And so, you know, it would feel like I would put loads of effort one month into a certain thing, I don't know, speaking, let's say, but that would mean, you know, forsaking my reading, which then would be lagging behind. And it just felt like, <laughs> you know, there was so there was just so much. It felt like there was just so much. But that is also quite exciting. It's a bit like, you know, I don't know. I, I suppose at that point, because what I really, really wanted to do was understand the people around me. The Japanese language was kind of the most desirable thing that there was and so you know seeing it in so many different forms constantly around me it's like oh and, and this thing and this thing and this thing it's kind of like going to a shop with you know like infinite amounts of amazing products that you were desperate to get your hands on I suppose but it, it takes a big cognitive toll doesn't it and I guess an emotional toll too it's like I think it's a bit like sort of running two operating systems in your head at the same time and that generates heat doesn't it I mean I'd, I remember again in Greece you know sort of not not dreaming in Greek by any means but the whole the whole kind of language processing it was like background processing was going on and and the words of the day or the, just even the sounds of the the language they're sort of your brain is doing something isn't it even if it's not consciously doing it but there's there's a lot of work going on pretty much all of the time there is and I'm really interested by the fact that you brought up the dreaming thing because like <laughs> until really close to the end I, I I really wanted to to write something about dreaming actually in in 50 sounds and never quite managed to get it into a shape that I was happy with but uh, you know I find it really interesting in our culture I don't know to what extent this is universal the way that people take dreaming in a language to be the sort of ultimate proof of fluency or ultimate proof of something very you know that you've really taken it in and for me I mean I, I don't know I don't quite know I still to this day don't quite know how you characterize dreaming in a language as opposed to that language appearing in your dreams but certainly from really early on in Japan I was having dreams that involved Japanese because like just like you say the cognitive load felt so enormous and it you know I could almost I would wake up and I could always feel my brain like really really worrying to try and process this just massive information and 
to this day now, when I have a period when I'm kind of translating really intensely or I've been speaking a lot more Japanese than usual or something, I will then dream in Japanese. And often those dreams are not, it's it's not just a kind of, it just, for me, dreaming has never been proof that you are, that I'm, I'm particularly good or something or, or, or anything. I, I think it's just, it's more a sign that there's just a huge amount of cognitive activity focused in this one particular area. You know, I mean, I, I feel like, I really do feel like Japanese was in my dreams even before I could formulate any words in it. You know, it was sort of just a way of kind of processing the sounds a lot. Yeah. I just find that really fascinating in a kind of Wittgensteinian way, it, you know, because several times I've had people ask me, oh, well, do you dream? What language do you dream in? You know, as if that's a sort of test of whether or not I'm a real Japanese speaker. And it just, I think, kind of digging into the myth of the, the dreaming in the foreign languages is kind of a good way of like exploding this idea of the real, the real speaker of a language. You know, we're all just, yeah. I mean, I'm a highly flawed <laughs> speaker of English, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah. I suspect it's a monoglots question and that right. because they relate their dreams in the lang- the only language they know, they assume that there is this other thing where, where you're actually dreaming in a foreign language and fight mistaking the the process or the activity of dreaming for for some kind of textual thing, which is, you know, which when you relate it, yes, it becomes words. But I think dreams are impressions and feelings and pictures and some dialogue. Right. <laughs> and the dialogue may be in a different language, but I don't think the dream the dream is written. I think it's only it's sort of written in the telling of it but yes exactly you know you can be a beat on a beach in japan but that doesn't necessarily mean the dream is in either english or japanese it's only when you when you recount it that it that it's rendered in in language i think i mean that's my subjective impression yeah exactly and i think in a similar way a lot of people monoglots mostly have this idea of thought you know that that they're their stream of consciousness is like just this kind of <laughs> constant, I see it as like an LED stream of of little, you know, of English words. And and my sense is that we don't think linguistically really at all. And then, you know, sometimes it feels like when we go to speak, what comes out is English or, you know, if we're trying to speak French, the phrase will formulate itself in English first and so then we think oh you know so then I'm, I'm thinking in English and anything I say in French is translated from that but I yeah I don't think I think what we refer to as thought and also as dreams like you say is this whole yeah whole bundle of different things isn't it presumably you could have got your Japanese to a a reasonable standard where you could understand people, you could have everyday exchanges, you could get by, you could get some satisfaction from understanding and sort of be content with that. But you, you, you clearly, that's, not, that's clearly not for you. And I wondered if I were to ask, well, what was it sort of, you know, I think you talk about the sort of bar keeping getting higher in terms of learning a foreign language. You clear one bar and then you discover that all these other things that you, you've, you've then got to grapple with. Well, what do you think it was that 
that sort of impelled you to to keep going, to keep pushing yourself harder, to keep trying to master more and more of the language? I mean, I think probably that's a question you should ask my therapist. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I, but but I mean, I say that in jest, but I I think it really comes down to a a personality trait in a way. I mean, I think I think I just feel very uncomfortable with not being able to express myself well. And I suppose, yeah, the one response to that would be to to run away. But I think what comes up in me is this kind of determination to try and do it better the next time. And, you know, and I should say that this is not, this is not something that's exclusive to foreign languages either. You know, I, I often feel a lot of frustration with not being able to kind of express myself properly in English, in spoken English. And I think that's a lot of the drive to write or the joy in writing comes from feeling that actually when I'm writing I can say the things that I find it much harder to say when I'm actually speaking to people but I think yeah with with Japanese it was yeah partly a desire to 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 express myself and also partly this phenomenal sense of of like admiration and kind of <laughs> envy I suppose for the like really wonderful textured rich Japanese that I saw people around me speaking and I just wanted to be able to do that you know like it was again like I, I feel embarrassed to keep bringing out these kind of materialistic <laughs> examples but honestly it did feel like kind of being a kid and and someone else having a, a thing and, and being like I want like I want that I want to be able to, to to use that toy or to to do that um oh here's here's a way to feel better about it because I don't think it is necessarily materialistic so I'm going to save you from that I think it could be like admiring someone who's very good at figure skating or someone who's very good at playing the cello or something and thinking you know, and as you as you go through the grades, as you sort of go through the stages of, of learning, you become aware of greater expressive potential kind of opening up. You you know, you master your scales and you master the basics and then you, you think, Oh why, I'd really like to be able to do that sort of double stop or that particular move. And it's as your own competence increases, I think you you become more appreciative of someone who's a really gifted performer in language or music or or whatever and I think that's that, that you're sort of measuring that distance at least this, this, is, this, is, this is I'm not sort of imposing this interpretation on you but my my sense is the more you become aware of what it is to be really skilled in in using language expressively the more you sort of want you want you want to sort of try to get as close to that as you as you possibly can yeah I I really relate to that a lot and like I'm thinking as you as you say that I'm thinking particularly of this one friend that I made in Osaka, who I, I write a bit about in the book, um, and he is just the most gifted storyteller. And the way that he uses language and kind of puts together these stories, it doesn't feel remotely rehearsed. You know, it feels very much a kind of spontaneous thing. And and I just from kind of from very early on in our friendship was just sort of spellbound by this and the kind of the creative potential of it. And I think, you know, this, yeah, I think it kind of taps in as well to to my interest in sort of linguistic 
expression and writing and you know it 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 all feels sort of part of the bundle and and translating as well and I was talking to Polly Barton. Polly's book, Fifty Sounds, is available in paperback from Fitzcarraldo Editions. More information on their website. And there's more about Polly and her work on her website, pollybarton.net. Part two of this conversation will be out next week. Meanwhile, on the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 80 more episodes of the programme. And you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Is on Apple, Google, Spotify and elsewhere, and catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.